Brandon Monroe, how are you, sir? Yeah, I'm well, Matt. Welcome back to another week. Another week with our short, sharp shock treatment for the world of uranium. We are gonna we're gonna get straight into it. So, just in terms of uh, we've seen a little bit of price move this week, kind of encouraging. Yeah, you know we've seen just a little glimpse into the future volatility that we'd expect. Spot price is ever so gently edging up, gone through fifty four dollars, and we've seen a little bit of movement in equities both ways. So Bannerman was up on Tuesday, straight out of the open, more than ten percent. Um, close the day about there. We weren't a lone ranger in that department. A number of the um, more oversold juniors also bounced that day, although we've had down days as well. So equities have been up and down and spot prices just slowly edging up. And that's a good thing. And I th- we know that it's got a long way to go. It has got a long way to go. So I think a lot of companies need to go a lot further than that. It's, it's, it's when that inflection point hits is what the uh, the big question being asked is. Um, also, any kind of further insights into the introduction of Zuri Invest? We talked about it last week. Well, I think what we're seeing is that certain investors are looking to front run that fund. Uh, the movement in equities, the positive movement was predominantly because of inflows into ETFs. So you've got investors looking to get ahead of the curve from an equities point of view. And also clearly we've got traders who are anticipating some fresh and rather motivated demand that would come into the spot market as a result of Zuri Invest being capitalised. So the, the type of money that trades uranium tends to be pretty sophisticated and pretty well informed. So that would push me towards believing that Zuri Invest has been a success. And I would probably venture as far as saying they've gone beyond their $100 million target. So that'll be good news for the sector. They'll have a nice little shopping list consisting of a couple of million pounds that they'll need to try and layer into the market without moving the price. So they're going to have their work cut out for them. And that'll also have a corresponding positive effect on equities. I think investors have still got plenty to choose from because most of the stocks gave back most, most if not all of the gains that they achieved in those couple of positive se- uh, sessions. So there's still lots of good buying out there in equities land. Another country in the news we don't really hear of uh, too often, Romania. What can you tell us? Well, very interesting developments in Euro- Romania. Coming out of the G7, they've been promised 275 large, so 275 million US of support for the deployment of a new scale Voyager SMR reactor. Now that's a helpful contribution, not only in absolute terms, that's not an insignificant amount of money, but because effectively what that does is that bridges the gap from where Romania is today to the what it would cost for an nth of a kind Voyager reactor in their country. In other words, it helps them with the additional costs associated with the very first one that you set up, all of the regulatory costs, the siting costs, uh, and the the other associated first-of-a-kind costs. So obviously it's an anticipation that there'll be a fleet of these reactors, and that's helpful for US industry and New Scale in particular. But what also caught my eye was the significant financing that's being talked about behind that. You know, there's talk of Exum and the US International Development Finance Corporation, you know, issuing letters of credit. We're talking about three billion uh, to support this program. Another billion coming from a 
consortium of the other G7 members that are participating, including Japan and others. Um, now, the, the group that I mentioned, the International Development Finance Corporation, uh, very keen viewers of this program would remember from a couple of years ago that it was a big deal when the US announced that that body would be released to invest in foreign jurisdictions. And at the time, we said uh, part of this, you know, it was part of the Trump era um, nuclear fuel uh, working group that came out with their big report. And it was a recommendation that the purse strings be sort of relaxed with this body so it couldn't only invest internally. Now, this is the first time that I've clocked that body investing into a specific nuclear power program abroad. It's obviously a response to Russian influence in former Eastern Europe, but it's to me, it's a real sign of things to come. And that is a body that has some serious cash behind it and some serious clout. So this is a good sign for new scale, of course. It's a good sign for other US SMR vendors, and it's a fantastic sign for the future deployment worldwide of SMRs. And we bring all of this back to what we consistently talk about on this show, which is you cannot talk energy and uranium and nuclear power without always thinking about what's the geopolitical context of it. And the geopolitical context is $275 million is pocket change compared to the vast amounts being spent in Ukraine, the vast amounts being spent in other economic and geopolitical theatres to try and outwit and outplay Russian influence. So add to that what China intends to do through its Belt and Road Initiative and other outreach programs via its nuclear power program, export program. And this is just a little bit of a taster of we might start to see the might of the US bring to bear through the nuclear industry and the provision of this very superior, clean, baseload, reliable power infrastructure around the world. And I'm looking forward to that because it's going to help the planet, help those economies, and obviously drive uranium demand as well. The winner of the week, who are you allocating that to? Who's the lucky people, person or company? Well, since we've already talked about New Scale's victory with their continued development in Romania, I'm going to award this week's winner to Consolidated Uranium for their deal that they've done with uh, Sachem Cove, who in turn are a lead investor in a private company called Premier Uranium Inc. So what they've done is they've taken some consolidated assets, taken this this company that has some assets at Sachem Cove have been dropping into it since about 2018. And now they're putting them together, amalgamating them, and then spinning them off into their own company called Premier American Uranium. And uh, Sachem are very generously donating the services of Tim Rotolo, who's a founder of Sachem Cove, who will be the CEO of the new vehicle. So it's going to be American focused. Uh, obviously, it'll have um, a number of assets. Clearly, there's some synergies between what Sachem Cove have put together over the last several years and what Consolidated have got. Now, the reason why it's a winner, time will only tell if it's a good deal or not. But the reason why I've given it winner of the week is this is a sensible deal because, number one, Consolidated are focused on other assets. They're focused on their Utah assets where they're having some success. And they are acknowledging that 
in these circumstances, secondary assets tend to become unloved unless you give them its own funding, its own management team, its own identity and the opportunity to shine in its own right. And at the same time, you've got Sachem Cove assets that perhaps on their own, neither package would be sufficient, would have the critical mass to be its own vehicle, but put them together and it looks like we've got a circa $25 million company that's going to hit the boards with its own drive and direction and strategy. And, you know, I wish them the best of luck. It'd be great to see another successful American company because, as we well know, uh, the US is desperate for domestic uranium production. So the more horses that are in this race, the better. The, the other reason why I'm excited about it is, as everyone watching this program knows, Mike Alkin has been a fantastic advocate for the sector. He was there right back in 2016, 2017, when uh, he and I were one of the only people talking uranium macro. And he's obviously had his head down being very busy over the last few months, but this will bring him out. And uh, I'm hoping that this deal will unleash a lot more Mike Alkin for us all to enjoy out there on YouTube and other platforms. And we've already seen a little hint of that over the last week with uh, his uh, erudite and smiling face popping up on my screen through a number of different interviews. So well done, Mike. Well done to the, well done, Tim. Well done to the crew from Consolidated Uranium. Uh, it's a good deal. It makes a lot of sense. And we wish you the best of luck. Okay, so that's our um, winner of the week. Um, but I think there's a sort of perhaps an honorary mention and uh, to follow up on last week's commentary. Uh, who are we going to talk about here? Well, in fact, it's the Belgian Prime Minister, Mr. Alexander de Croo, and he gets the consolation prize for winner of the week because uh, particularly after we singled Belgium out as our bungle of the week last week, he's obviously been listening to the show as you'd hope he would be. And he came out very assertively in favor of nuclear power and just, uh, declared that it should make its comeback as a reliable and carbon-free baseload for our grids. Now, of course, that's not news to any of us, but it's really important that you've got political leadership out there, um, not only explaining its inherent benefits, being that it's reliable, it's baseload and it's carbon free, but actually leaning on the constituency and saying, we need it, we need more of it, it has to be there. So well done to the Belgian PM de Croo. Backtracking, thanks to the energy show on Crooks and Buster. Um, let, let's just say that's true. Right. <laughs> and now, obviously, um, last week, we, you, as you mentioned, you, you put Belgium down as bungle of the week, but not to be outdone, not to be outdone. Um, who were you awarding it to this week? Oh, well, definitely not to be outdone. I mean, Belgium was a mere transgression with some of their difficulties they're facing compared to where I'm sitting right now, which is Australia. So the bungle of this week, as much as it could be a bungle any week in Australia, because we've got a Labor government that won't even allow a debate on whether there should be a repealing of the archaic laws that prohibit nuclear power. But uh, they've really outdone themselves because in their federal budget that they set down uh, just recently, they've allowed the the enormous sum by Australian standards of 19 billion, that's capital B, billion dollars for uh, clean energy, for renewable energy, but it doesn't actually generate a single megawatt. It's just simply building grid infrastructure to connect renewables projects, intermittent ones that are, you know, out in whoop whoop, as we say in Australia, 
to make the enormous connections required to get that power production somewhere remotely close to where the power is consumed. And of course, this is one of the inherent difficulties of deploying intermittent renewables when you've got you know, really concentrated populations. Australia is a big country with a tiny population of 26 million, which is about 95% concentrated on the coast. So this is the rub. That's just simply to make intermittent renewable more viable. And of course, when they start talking about the cost of renewables, that 19 billion, billion, that's not included in the cost of the renewables because that's a separate government infrastructure spend. And here's what is really bungling of it. Uh, the bungle of bungles, which is the bungling Labor government's climate policy and energy policy. And that is that with that 19 billion, you could build anywhere between 12 and 15 SMRs and put them on existing coal-fired power station sites that have been decommissioned where there's already all this wire. There's already a workforce that could be two thirds deployed into working for that SMR. There's already the infrastructure and the um, commercial infrastructure, the businesses and the, um, the energy users that have grown up for decades around this baseload source of power, just as reliable and as baseload as nuclear, just simply not clean because it's coal. So that would make an enormous difference. It would erase any of the cost comparisons that the Labor government seeks to levy against nuclear power. And it would dramatically improve our Australia's clean energy credentials without risking intermittency, without risking power prices and without needing to change the social and commercial fabric of the energy users around them. So it was a real clear winner this week. And I'm afraid to say that they're probably going to be a finalist uh, repeatedly because there's absolutely no sign from Australia's Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, that he's prepared to even engage with what nuclear power can offer Australia. He's got the blinkers on, he's got the earplugs in, and uh, he's not prepared to even think about it. He's got his course of action and he will not be swayed until either he's removed or his government's removed. Let's move on to the next subject, which, which, um, which is, and again, we, something we've talked about a lot, which is um, because of the Russia-Ukraine situation, sanctions happening, um, you know, cozying up between Russia, China, uh, et cetera, the bifurcation of, of the marketplace, um, there's a kind of big gap there too. So um, you've got a big, you've got a question on that topic, don't you? Yeah, we've had one come in through the percent platform. And uh, the question was, if the 43% of nuclear fuel from Russia disappears, or eventually all goes to China and the East, how long will it take the West to backfill? So, uh, and this well-informed member of, of Percent says, I'm aware that this really isn't like flicking on a switch, indeed, and can take years to ramp up this capability. So what are your best guesses on where the required fuel will come from and in what timetable? Now, this is obviously an in-depth question that we can go into, but there's a, some fundamentals that we need to understand. Like, first of all, there isn't a singular answer as to how much enrichment the West needs to build. And that's because enrichment is a function of tails assays. And that takes us all the way back to the question of, do we underfeed or do we overfeed? 
What we do know is that the Western enrichers have stopped underfeeding. And if they can get the conversion capacity, in other words, if they can get the UF6 feedstock in the quantities that they want, they would be overfeeding right now and, and more aggressively. Hence, you also need to solve for the equation for conversion capacity. How much conversion capacity? Because without Russian material, the West is short of both enrichment and conversion. So until you understand how much enrichment capacity you're dealing with and therefore how much conversion capacity you need, you can't quite answer that question. Um, however, as a ready reckoner, as an easy answer to that question, we're probably going to need to wait until 2027 or 2028 before we'll see material expanded uh, enrichment capacity, which requires conversion expansion as a precursor. And it's really the end of the decade before we will see substantive additional investment into Western enrichment and conversion. And that will be catching on not only for the degree of displacement of Russian material, but will also be concertinaing into some heavy demand for HALU, that's the uh, high assay, low enriched uranium that's required for the next generation small modular reactors and other applications, as well as what's called LEU plus, that's above 5% enriched material. Uh, so I'm expecting to see a big cycle of uh, investment into both conversion and enrichment to backfill the Russian material to create the capacity for SMRs and simply to meet the growing demand profile from conventional nuclear. Now, here's the rub. The enrichers and the converters are saying to the utilities, we can do this for you, but not without contracts. We're not going to take a chance like we did before Fukushima when they went out and established a lot of extra capacity on spec and then got caught with that when the world suddenly stopped building nuclear power plants and had an almost instantaneous 10% drop in nuclear capacity around the world via Japan and uh, Germany. So they're not gonna do that again without government push anyway. And that's why the utilities around the world are not sweating uranium. They're sweating enrichment and they're sweating conversion not only for their current needs, but for their future needs and to mitigate the risk that the tap will be turned off in terms of Russian material. So that's having implications for the uranium sector because that focus just hasn't made its way through enrichment and conversion down the fuel cycle to uranium. Moving on, um, we are a bit of humour. We're, we're funny guys. Um, a little bit of humour. We've got a, a tweet of the week. We just wanted to pull this up and share this with everyone. Um, and I don't know if you're able to able to do that, uh, Brandon. Yeah. Okay. So we can all see that tweet now. Um, it's kind of funny, but it's kind of tragic. And look, let's face it. It draws a very clear or shines a very clear light on some of the hypocrisy that we see amongst the anti-nuclear groups. So uh, what this uh, genius this graphic genius has done is taken the uh, standard change graphic that has been so well deployed by a well-known anti-nuclear group and depicted it with the reality in Germany. So you can see the move from a windmill 
sorry, from a nuclear symbol into a strip mining coal bucket. And for Germany, that has been precisely the experience. They haven't been able to displace their nuclear power program with intermittent renewables. And all it's resulted in is an increase in their coal mining. They've been willing to shut down nuclear power reactors at the same time as they've reopened coal mines. And we're not talking high quality Queensland coal. We're not talking good quality stuff. We're talking about the dirtiest coal that is burnt in the developed world, right in the center of Europe. So it's put Germany's climate ambitions in tatters. Uh, it's made them the, um, you know, really in climate circles, an embarrassment to the EU. And it's exposed the hypocrisy of their anti-nuclear movement and their anti-nuclear policy. So uh, on the first glance, it's a well-constructed chuckle, but there's something much deeper beneath it. And that's why it became the tweet of the week. Moonshots and fizzers is a popular one last week. Who, who, are you, who are you putting up? Well, this is one that will hopefully draw some attention to Core Power, a company that uranium investors might not be aware of. These guys have got some serious backing behind them, all the way to Bill Gates and some very big shipping money because they have uh, in development a very viable solution to one of the most difficult decarbonisation questions out there. And that is, how do you decarbonise long haul shipping? Now, the reason why it's so viable is long haul shipping in the form of the nuclear Navy has been decarbonised for decades without incident. So in the, uh, in the strategic or military sense, nuclear propulsion is a well-worn path and there's 140 micro reactors floating around the world over the last few decades in the form of the nuclear navy and other icebreakers in Russia and other um, uh, naval applications. There have been some commercial icebreakers nuclear powered and there was even an experimental cargo ship nuclear powered for a period of time. Now what these guys are doing is they've had to take the model and change it uh, in conjunction with TerraPower with their molten salt reactor, because you can't apply naval enrichment to the civilian uh, propulsion, maritime propulsion game. It's a great design. It looks fantastic. I've, you know, I know Mikhail Bohr, the uh, CEO of Core Power, extremely talented team. And the extent of the market is unfathomably big over time because uh, the if, it, if you remove some of the um, some of the challenges that they will face with uh, social license in ports and just the time it's going to require to commercialise this, it is an enormous preferred solution over current propulsion without even considering the decarbonisation debate. So a nuclear-powered cargo ship can operate consistently at 20 knots uh, its entire lifespan of 20 years. And when it's plugged in at, and when it's at port, rather than paying demurrage, it'll plug in and power the port infrastructure. And in the right scenario, actually earn money to be stuck at port as it powers surrounding infrastructure and uh, provides power to the port and other users there. So it's a great development. And the, the reason why I call it a moonshot, is they've now also added another application utilising the same technology suite, and that is floating nuclear power plants. 
They've just had about $80 million of investment from a consortium of Japanese investors, including um, the Onomichi Dockyards. And they're looking to take their concept and have it on little, if you look at the uh, link, you'll see the little sort of rubber ducky looking uh, crafts that can be manoeuvred, but are designed to just sit there in open water. It's got a lot of advantages, particularly in the Japanese psyche, given that, uh, you know, they're not exposed to earthquakes, they're not around people. Uh, as long as they're not on the shoreline, they can survive tsunamis and all of that type of thing. So uh, I like Core Power as a business. I like their management. I love their concept. They've got some big backers behind them and they are solving truly one of the world's most difficult to solve decarbonisation issues. And it's a vastly superior alternative to some of the, uh, you know, biofuels or green ammonia type solutions that are being bandied around. So best of luck to them. And I certainly think they'll be a moonshot, not a fizzer. Uh, Brandon, great, uh, great week. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts uh, with us. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Matt.